This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Well, one of the things that we need to be worrying about from a military perspective is the redundancy and the resilience of those systems should we decide we want to fight in some kind of modern warfare style. It's not about the offensive weapons. It's about our capacity to sort of deal with it gracefully. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The 2021 Future Strategy Forum focused on the nexus between national security and technology. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast features a panel discussion from the forum about how emerging technologies are shaping the battle space and changing the nature of warfare. The moderator is Sarah Plana, Ph.D. candidate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The Feature Strategy Forum is presented by CSIS, the Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins SICE, and Bridging the Gap. Good afternoon, everyone, um, and thank you for joining us for the first panel of the Future Strategy Forum on Emerging Technologies in Warfighting. I'm Sarah Plana. I'm a PhD candidate at MIT, a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School this year, and currently a non-resident senior associate at CSIS. But I am delighted to be here to moderate a conversation with these four experts from academia, the policy world, and the private sector. So first up, we have Ivana Hugh who is the CEO and partner of Omelas, a technology company that leverages machine learning, artificial intelligence, and data analytics to understand security and influence threats. She has years of experience in technology ventures that intersect intelligence, military, and defense communities. Next up is Dr. Nina Kolars, who is an associate professor in the Cyber and Innovation Policy Institute at the U.S. Naval War College. Dr. Collars has served as a fellow at multiple military institutions and on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, um, and her research focuses on cybersecurity, future warfare, information operations, and military integration. Dr. Ulrike Franke is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, where she leads its technology and European power initiative. Her research focuses on European security and defense, and the impact of new technologies like drones and artificial intelligence on geopolitics and warfare. Finally, uh, we have Julie George, who is a PhD candidate in the government department at Cornell University, where she researches emerging technologies and international security. Her dissertation examines the proliferation of emerging tech and its impact on the probability and nature of conflict and cooperation in the international system. So thank you everybody uh, for being here today. So I wanted to start with a broad question for all the panelists to launch uh, our discussion today. Op-ed pages are awash with discussions of a number of cutting edge technologies being developed with possible uses on the battlefield. But I wonder from your vantage point, what are the top one to two threats from emerging technologies that the US military or foreign policy apparatus should be prepared to meet in the next five to 10 years and why? So let's start with Ivana. Great, thank you for having me. My top two threats, um, the first is really about, it's not even actually about technology itself, um, because what I like to say always is that the problem is not really about whether or not we have the technologies, but it's about how we're actually adopting them. 
So it's not just about, you know, tech, um, about defense acquisition, but it's also just about, you know, how do we actually look at technology as a tool for us to get to the mission outcomes that we want, rather than, you know, saying, hey, um, I just want AI because it's a cool thing to have. Um, but it's like, no, the reason why you want AI or quantum or hypersonic is to get to, you know, X, Y, and Z uh, mission outcomes. And my second um, top threat is sort of related to that, which is the people problem. Um, I think we need to do a much better job fostering and developing the people that we have within a DOD um, and better, you know, empower them to think about, hey, how can I, what can I actually do as a team player to contribute to this mission rather than constantly thinking about sort of being risk averse and not really being called out and, you know, having some of the perverse um, incentives to not take risks. Nina? Oh, thanks. Um, so I want to also just, Ivana, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, right? I mean, one of the, one of the major issues with military innovation, whether technological or administrative or policy oriented, is really often revolving around how we implement and how we integrate, right? And so, in particular, when we talk about Department of Defense issues, in particular with the United States, we're really talking about. Um, you can you can get as far as you want with the technology, and 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 you said you said the classic three, right? Hypersonics, quantum, and AI. You can get as far as you want with those, but until you get to implementation and battlefield use, you really just don't have very much. And so, really, so much rides not just on can we make it fast enough. In fact, if you think of the history of the Department of Defense, the United States, the technology developing it all by itself has almost never been the problem, right? So that's the Mars rover shows us, right? That the technological issues are never Never really the problem, but it's really about how do we want to implement it and how do we want to restructure the military to make that happen. But I'll say a couple of things about cyber anyway. Um, so I think I think from my perspective, from from inside uh, SciPy, our Innovation Institute, um, I think in the next five to ten, it's really about uh, cyber capabilities, and it's not about the offensive one; it's about the defensive ones. And so cyber, I mean, I think for for all we we make out of the offensive tools, cyber is effectively the art of using our own vulnerabilities against us, right? So we have all of these networks that we plan to implement and use in modern warfare. There's a, you may have heard of things like JADC2, the joint all domain command and control. So the, all of those systems require information and data flows. And so one of the things that we need to be thinking about is not just how do we leverage that to fight, but how do we make those secure and resilient and redundant enough so that they're available for fighting. And this is just purely from a DOD perspective. I mean, if we think about this across the, the domestic US landscape, as we wake up this morning to some pipeline concerns uh, with cyber, you know, there are supply chain and what we call um, ICT, information communications technology concerns all the way around. But one of the things that we need to be worrying about from a military perspective is the redundancy and the resilience of those systems should we decide we want to fight in, in some kind of modern warfare style, some, some sort of information-centric, all-domain um, now I've added all the extra buzzwords um, um, manner that we need to be thinking about DOD supply chain, ICT supply chain, and how to ensure that we can operate in those dense and congested networks. That those are my that's my primary concern. It's not about the offensive weapons. It's about our capacity to sort of uh, deal with it gracefully. Thank you, um, Ulrike. Do you want to respond? Sure, thank you. Good evening to, to everybody. Um, you know, I mean, I knew that this question was coming and I had this whole 
speech prepared about how it's basically impossible to say what the biggest threats are and how I'm so happy to be a think tanker and not someone who actually needs to decide, you know, which things to fund and which not to fund, because I literally think it's impossible because there's several kind of layers of uncertainty. Um, however, kind of talking about this for five minutes is, is a bit of a cop-out, I guess, um, the, the think tanker cop-out. So so I, I, I thought I'll, I'll flag two, two other things as the kind of European um, on, on the panel. And the two things I want to flag is that one thing I'm concerned with, with, you know, the increasing use of, let's call it emerging technology in warfare, is that the the transatlantic allies aren't doing this at the same pace and with the same kind of urgency and they don't approach it the same way and so one thing i worry or at least you know look at quite 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 a lot is the extent to which you know the us is is basically saying you know we want to do this we're going to do all these fancy things um and many of the europeans either do not want to do that cannot do this for technological or, or um, financial reason um, or aren't just not there yet. There's also kind of a, a question of, of speed. And so so that's, I think, something that we need to keep an eye on. Um, I mean, you could argue that this is a bigger problem for the Europeans than for the Americans because the Americans can do things alone, which is fair enough, but the US tends to not want to do this. So I think the US also should care about interoperability with the allies um, to, to some extent. But yeah, so that's something I would flag um, as, as something we need to we need to keep an eye on. And the second bit is also more political, um, which is about the kind of the way that the current great power competition between the US and China seems to be playing out a lot through techno technology. I mean, both military, but also technology more broadly. And um, I mean, there's only so much we can do about it, but I do worry slightly about the, the some of the rhetoric that comes out of, of the US in, in recent times. Um, I think the most striking example, and I think it was a good report, but still the most striking example of this was the recent report by the National Commission on, on uh, National Security Commission on AI. Um, the kind of 700 plus pages, which was very, which very much conveyed this urgency of, you know, we need to, we need to dominate, we need to beat China, you know, there's this whole, there's this whole thing. And I think, you know, again, from a European point of view, there's a certain worry that, 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 yeah, this conflict is, is becoming exacerbated um, uh, by the, the technological um, competition. Um, and and as much as I tell the Europeans to kind of care more about this and think more about power, power politics, I also kind of want to tell the Americans to maybe tone it down a little bit to not kind of create a conflict where we don't need to have um, one at least at, at this point. So yeah, this is the kind of European view on 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 or the European take, let's say, on on these issues. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, Julie. Great. Well, first, thanks so much for this opportunity. And um, my colleagues bring up really great points about these top threats about cyber and other emerging technologies. In 2018, the National Defense Strategy pointed out that U.S. national security would be impacted by a number of technologies. And we pointed some of them out right now in this discussion about advanced computing, big data analytics, AI, autonomy, robotics, hypersonics. The list goes on and on and on. And it's, it's in discussion of how we can fight and win these wars of the future. 
But I think what's really important is that it's not just the United States that faces these technological developments. There are other key strategic competitors, and Ulrike and Nina and Ivana have already alluded to some of these. I think one of the top threats from cyber and emerging technologies relates to the fact that there are a great number of actors beyond states. There are also non-state actors that have quick and easy access to technologies, um, low financial um, capabilities to get them, and for the most part can be anonymous in nature. And the latter part is due to the attribution problem. But these threats are distinctly different from other emerging technologies because of speed and connectivity and the sheer amount of data, which is unlike other periods. So I think when we're thinking about these top threats, we have to think about who are the actors and the pace of these technologies and how we can further bolster our defense, as Nina has mentioned. So these comments are so rich, and hopefully we can get at at least a portion of each of these amazing points from everybody. I wanted to launch in a little bit to the idea of if you had to prioritize which emerging tech capabilities you would integrate into the U.S. military today, which ones would you? Why? And I think getting back to Ivana and Nina's points about exactly what the envisioned use would be, how do you envision those emerging techs uh, would actually impact mission outcomes and, and achieve mission outcomes? And what transformations in force structure, doctrine, training capabilities, and plans would be required to implement uh, your proposition? Um, so maybe we can do reverse order uh, of what we just did. Um, Julie, if you want to launch us off. Sure. So I think there are two aspects to this really great question. First, um, with respect to the U.S., you know, the Department of Defense invests in AI have grown from $600 million in 2016 to $927 million just last year. And there are over 600 active AI projects. So I think one important consideration is that we need to prioritize and continue to design a strategy for educating service members in relevant fields to AI. Um, in fact, tomorrow we'll hear from a key member from the National Security Commission on AI who will talk about the assessment of military-relevant AI technologies. But I also think the second aspect is that the current DOD ISR um, enterprise does not yet possess the readiness to effectively support operations in the gray zone or support combat operations in a highly contested environment. I think there's always room for improvement. And so I think what we need to think about further is how do we enhance situational awareness, aid rapid decision making, and reliably find, fix, and target elusive um, targets deep within the enemy territory. And so I think the aim for the future is that the DOD ISR enterprise really needs to gain access to data from multiple domains, think about how these delivery systems are going to be a key part um, in the years to come, and possess a workforce that can execute these missions. Anyone can jump in, but if not, we can um, go to Ulrike. Sure. Um, so... So I'm working primarily on kind of AI-enabled um, capabilities. So I, I wouldn't kind of claim to be able to, um, you know, to make to, to say everything about, you know, whether it should be hypersonics or cyber or anything else. But in the AI-enabled um, realm, I'm gonna say 
I would recommend the US or other militaries that can um, to look quite a bit into swarms and swarming capability. Um, the reason being swarms, so I mean the kind of, you know, several units, it can be drones, it can be other things working together as one and kind of being able to carry out operations as one. So we're not just talking mass and let's say mass drones, but, but really kind of systems working um, together. And the reason why I chose swarms is because it kind of ticks, um, it ticks two boxes. Number one, a lot of the AI um, enable capabilities we think about make capabilities more efficient, um, sometimes cheaper, better, faster, all of this, which is all great. But what usually um, is the most revolutionary thing is if you can come up with real new military capabilities, like things you couldn't do before. And of all the things I see in the AI-enabled realm at the moment, and I'm really saying at the moment because a lot can happen, but at the moment I say that swarms kind of tick this box best because I think here we really have an opportunity for kind of new military capabilities. You can imagine, um, you know, kind of all these so-called kill nets. Um, you can kind of occupy territory almost with swarms. You, you can do waves of attack, all these kind of things. Um, and the second, the second box it kind of ticks is this point about it's not just the technology, it's how you use it. And from what I can see in the literature, swarms is one of those things where we actually have thought about quite a bit. And there are some you know, ideas about doctrines and how to use it uh, much more than, than maybe for other um, capabilities. So, so, so yeah, I think that's, that's the one I would kind of flag. Um, and I know that obviously a lot of people are thinking about this, now writing about this, and this is quite, quite far advanced, but I think there's a good, good reason for it. I, so I have to say that I love how all these answers are like beautiful, interconnected, but also like shockingly different. <laughs> I'm always like, oh, they're always going to say my answer. So, um, so I've got two. Um, one of them, I think, just purely from a cyber perspective, um, with the exception of very small parts of um, Cyber Command, what we call JFHQ Doden, or you know, the, the Department of Defense Information Network. It's all private sector all the way down. It's all COTS all the way down. And so the way in which we do cyber defense better is really just about all private sector stuff, right? It's really about upgrading our operating systems beyond Windows XP or right unsupported platforms. So I think, and I think en enough is being said about that 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 we can hopefully we can make those relationships work and do a far better job of incorporating the private sector into how we defend. Um, I think the other thing that's been on my mind, and a shout out to uh, a tremendous space scholar named Sarah Monero, who puts me onto these thoughts because I'm not a space scholar. Um, but one of the things that I've increasingly worried about is the redundancy and resilience of our um, our electromagnetic spectrum, right? So our capacity to, in particular for military purposes, PNT, position, navigation, and timing. So thinking about alternatives and redundancies to GPS, to the way the military um, understands where it is and where it's going, the way our assets understand where they are and where they're going, those are all based on a very... Um, very few uplinks to into space. And so I'm really thinking about getting um, either land-based redundancies for PNT or finding other ways to become slightly more independent. The Chinese are, um, in particular, are putting a lot of money into space. Um, I know that I'm not terribly excited about the militarization of our space assets because, of course, all of our communities are dependent upon them. Uh, but I'm not excited about it, and yet here we are. 
Um, so I would say I, I really I think if we're going to put a lot of money into one thing, it's definitely um, thinking very carefully about PNT and how to make sure that it's there. Thank you. Ivana, do you have any responses? Um, I can add to that list. Um, but the two things I want to say are super unsexy. So the first is I want to talk about data cleaning and processing, because I think it really ties into something that Eureka actually mentioned, which is the interoperability aspect of it, which is that we spend so much time and effort doing data cleaning and processing. And because of something actually mentioned that, that Nina mentioned, which is the fact that a lot of the tools that we're using are COTS and they come from the commercial world. Everyone has their data in different format, you know, and then so when we try to combine them together into all source intelligence, it just becomes this like giant gobbledygook, right? And then not to even mention like, how do we go from the unclassified side into JWICs and vice versa? And so I think there definitely needs to be actually a set uniform standards um, for data formatting. Um, this is something that the primes are very much against, which is understandable, but I think something that we definitely need to think about, especially moving forward in some kind of a contracting regulations or something similar, right? Um, and the second um, thing I want to add is really about supply chain. Uh, we're talking about, you know, a lot of these um, software and hardware things are really cutting edge, but a lot of that is really based on critical supply chain. And we've seen what has happened in the past couple of years, but the conversation around supply chain has been going back at least 10 years, just that no one really cared about it in the beginning, but now we're starting to, um, experience the ramifications of it. And so that's something else that we really need to think um, a lot about. And it's not just about, oh, something was made in China because just because something is made in China, it doesn't, it doesn't make that into like a national security risk. So we also need to be a little bit careful about that aspect too. Can I, can I just say, I think it's the kind of pointing out the unsexy stuff is the sign of real expertise. Um, so this whole, I mean, you know, as, as, as Nina was saying, redundancy and resilience and, and as Ivana was just pointing out data cleaning, like none of this, you know, sounds super exciting, but it's the, the underlying infrastructure and the underlying architecture without which nothing works. And so, so yeah, I very much second that point and I think it's really important. I think in a lot of, of comments that we've received already, um, there's this theme about the private sector for obvious reasons. And so I'm wondering how you all think about the role of the private sector in uh, in you know, defense-related um, emerging technology integration, acquisition. What are the ways in which the partnerships, public-private partnerships have worked well in the past? What are ways in which they work not so well, um, and how do you envision any sort of changes to those partnerships in, in the next few years? Anyone who would like to, to tackle it? I have a back of the pocket. And again, this, the answers that each of us come to are going to depend on the particular technology we're looking at. And so, and so my answers aren't anybody else's answers, but one of the, one of the key problems in cyberspace defense and, and even just looking at the attack uh, spectrum is that uh, the vast majority of those attacks are happening 
uh, on the private sector, and the defenders are first and foremost private sector actors. And so, um, so we often talk about public-private partnership in cyberspace. Um, DOD in particular has tried to sort of express, and in fact, the federal government's been trying to express sort of um, the need for good relationships and information sharing. Uh, but the reality exists that, um, that the private sector has um, has many reasons not to trust um, the U.S. government or even sort of just governments overall. Um, and so one of the things that really needs to be done to sort of facilitate that interaction is for government to bring something to the table that it will benefit the private sector. And I don't mean this in a way sort of like, you know, the private sector does make money and that's that's its its bottom line. But there's um, there's a there seems to be an inability to understand and um I don't know if empathize is the right word, but sort of just understand what the role of defender is in the private sector and why they are reluctant to share under the conditions under which they'd be willing to talk about and work on the problems together. So at this point, it's just understood as a one-way valve. They give information to the government and then the government takes it and doesn't say anything or doesn't warn them. In Cybersecurity defenders spend a lot of time analyzing all this raw data that Ivan is talking about, tons and tons of raw data. When they build out that intelligence, they're ready to tell a story. And, and when they pass it over to the federal government, the federal government often just takes the story and wanders off and doesn't then participate in the further enrichment or the development of understanding that all these all these individual defenders need to know so that they can defend themselves. And so I think just helping them understand the private sector better, what it does and why that respect between parties is important. Um, I think that's, I think we would do a, a, a lot better if we, if we were more careful about that. I wonder, Ivana, from your vantage point in the private sector and a lot of your experiences, even in the nonprofit sector might be useful insight here as well. Definitely. So I would say, I have two almost um, contradictory answers to that. The first is from a private sector perspective. I mean, I work mostly in computational propaganda and I can tell you that I really wish that we had more guidance from the US government because it is really strange to be a private sector company um, and thinking, well, you know, informational warfare is, is really important, right? But when you ask government customers, what are your metrics of effectiveness and what are your metrics of, of performance? They're like, we don't know. Why don't you go and figure it out? And so it's very strange to be like, oh, yeah, I'm just like startup that like can do a lot of really cool stuff. But I'm also trying weirdly like making these operational decisions because those decisions have not been made for me. But if you look at the joint I.O. doctrine, that was really only finalized a few years ago. And so for a lot of us, we it's that very strange line that we have to balance of how much do I want to influence this field and how much ex, how much confidence do I have in my own expertise, um, while also respecting the fact that I'm never going to be as operational as people who are downrange in Niger were in wherever around the world who are living it every single day. But they unfortunately just don't have the years of policymakers in the U.S., right? Um, and same with sort of that data cleaning aspect of it is that it would actually be a lot more useful for the private sector if the government said, hey, here's the backend infrastructure that we have. And all the stuff that you're trying to build on top of it in terms of your machine learning models and things like that, it needs to fall within this infrastructure. Because right now, we don't have that. So what we end up doing is we have to go to all the primes and say, 
hey, what's your format? And what's your format? And what system do you guys use? Right? And I think that is something that needs to be talked about more. Um, but then on the flip side of things, and going back to something that Nina said, is absolutely right. Like a lot of times, you know, you give data to the U.S. government, and then you never hear anything about it. And even from someone who, like, I care about the mission and the impact. And it's really weird to, to send data and be like, well, I don't know what happened to that. Like, they could have caught a terrorist with that, but I wouldn't really know. And so how are we supposed to empower our employees to work long hours and to, you know, collaborate with the government, especially in the cyber world where you have that very strange mix of like activist people with like the patriotic people and you're trying to navigate through all of that. If I can maybe come in on this, because this is absolutely fascinating to kind of hear the, the view from the, the private sector, because one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, and actually that I worry about, um, I, I think, you know, this relationship between the state and the private sector is going to become so much more important um, and, and so much more difficult in, in the future. And, and something I, I worry about is whether private sector or kind of nationalism um, of those working in the private sector can become a strategic advantage for some countries. So what I mean by that is that I, I think, you know, the... I, in Amer there are lots of kind of very big American companies that say, and I think also feel that way, um, that they are international companies, not primarily American companies. Of course, although of course they also work with the with the American um, uh, with the U.S. state. That may not be the case in other places where you know the private sector may be seeing itself much more in the. Yeah, as being part of the state and, and you know, being part of, of and, and seeing its role as kind of building up um, the state, uh, the state's power. So basically, I'm, I, I kind of worry that that something that we don't like, namely, you know, kind of very strong nationalism um, is actually a comparative advantage um, for countries. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of a very meta point and not so much, you know, what can we do? But that's something I, I, I look at or worry about a bit. Um, can I just add to this question? And I think that this is really important, the relationship between the private sector and the U.S. military. So, of course, we know about the DOD and the Defense Innovation Unit, which works with, you know, looking at commercial companies and solving national security issues. Um, something that Ivana brought up was this, like, lack of communication. And I think that's really important. I just like to underscore it. Um, for example, I think many of us know um, what happened in 2017 with Project Maven and how there was backlash from some Google employees regarding its objectives and its intended uses. Um, and, you know, it used computer vision algorithms to look at this um, imagery, um, tons of data that military and civilian annulists would look at. But I think that Google is not the only company that is working with these contracts. You know, we have Microsoft, Amazon, smaller companies. But I think there are two lessons that we can take away from this. And one, it's about making sure that transparency is the most important, um, especially working on these multi-million dollar projects. Um, two, that there should be sufficient vetting on both sides, uh, from the military and from the private sector. I mean, today, um, a Wall Street Journal article came out about JEDI and this cloud-based initiative. 
and how there's weighing of litigation between Amazon and Microsoft. So again, I think this goes back to a need of transparency and sufficient vetting before we're diving deep down without looking at our steps. So turning gears a little bit to my final question before we open it up to we are getting so many questions, which is fantastic. Um, we've talked a lot about from the U.S. angle, we've touched a little bit on our allies in Europe especially, but I'm wondering uh, your view on the ways uh, our adversaries are incorporating emerging technology into their warfighting plans or capabilities. How should we be thinking about it? How should the U.S. military be thinking about it? How should the U.S. foreign policy apparatus more broadly be thinking about how I'm thinking specifically of China and Russia, which I think has come up a couple of times at this point. Um, where do they wish to go with these capabilities? And especially, it'd be, I'd be curious to hear what challenges you see China and Russia stumbling across already, given that we've talked at length about some of the challenges the U.S. is facing. I'm certain that they're facing uh, some of their own, too. So whoever would like to jump in, let's go to Ulrike, let's say. Go for it. Um, I mean, the honest, the on, my honest answer would, would need to be, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there are, um, I mean, especially in the U.S., there are a lot of really good people who look at um, what China is is doing in this in this realm. Um, and I think, I mean, you know, I'm I'm just basically consuming this this research, and I find it very difficult to to. Uh, to judge, you know, between those papers that basically say, oh, my God, they're doing this, you know, massively and they're investing a lot and really advancing and look, look at this cool thing that they develop and others that, that point out, you know, all the difficulties that, of course, they share and and um, where they may not be as, as advanced. So so um, I, I don't think I have a good answer, to be honest. Um, I, I think we're all what is obviously needed is is the research and the, the attention being paid um, to to what adversaries are doing. Um, I have to say, again, from a European point of view, I worry slightly that um, we don't do this enough and very much rely on the kind of research that's being done by the US. And the US tends to look primarily at China. And, you know, again, from a European point of view, maybe we should also pay, pay attention to, to Russia um, or other actors. Um, so, but yeah, this, this is more something for the, for the Europeans to consider. But I don't think I have a great answer. So I'm going to stop talking and hope that the others have something more interesting to say. I would, I would like to offer just a follow-up to um, Ulrika's point about the United States tends to outrun its partners and allies when it comes to technological development. And if you look at who the United States thinks its primary adversaries are, those are not anywhere near U.S. territory. And so outrunning our partners and allies technologically is a really big problem, right? Because in theory, we're playing in their backyard and not in ours. And so I can't, I can't say that enough. And I just want to make sure that we, we, we come back to that point at some point. Um, that speaking to our adversaries' capabilities, um, I guess to the degree to which Defense departments match and mirror each other, right? The sort of one-upmanship or the, you know, the sort of the unfortunate spiral. Um, you know, I'll have to say that more computer chips and more interconnectivity is more vulnerability. And so the more we talk about um, the integration, uh, if you want to talk about the, the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians, the integration of newer, better, faster, um, you're also introducing boatloads of vulnerability that require all the basic things like software updates, regular maintenance, right? And those are all vulnerabilities. So 
you know, we've given ourselves this headache, but in so far as our as our allies take on our partner adversaries take on this challenge too, they're giving themselves vulnerabilities as well. So maybe that's heartening. I'm not sure. <laughs> that's that's all I've got. It's a good reminder, you know, they adversaries are not always, you know, the the most perfect adversaries, let's say. Julie, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I think one way to cut at this question, and I'm sure there are a number of answers, is that I think um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance is um, our major ways that our adversaries are incorporating emerging tech. Um, and so when I think about China, I'm thinking about the advancements that they're making in language and facial recognition technologies, which are being integrated into their networks. Um, and of course, this could be used to counter espionage or aid military targeting. But of course, um, this is not just with China. I mean, there are other countries like Russia. Um, Putin has made this like famous comment that whoever becomes a leader in AI will become the ruler of the world. And so I think that, you know, Russia has really tried to close the gap when it comes to artificial intelligence. You know, they released a national strategy that outlines five and 10 year benchmarks for improving AI overall. Um, and they want to robotize 30% of the country's military vehicles. So, in terms of challenges, I think that we need to look at the sheer cost of these emerging technologies. And second, the proof of concept. Um, in the case of Russia, military spending dropped by 20% in constant dollars in 2018. With China, the Made in uh, China 2025 initiative um, shows that they also want to advance in these emerging technologies, but there's limited information. So I think we'll have to wait and watch to see which emerging technologies actually are proven over time. Can I jump in on here? Okay, great. So I kind of I first want to go back to Nina's point about the single the about the vulnerabilities because a lot of these systems, the thing about authoritarian states is typically they're running on one or two systems, right? So once you can get in and you figure out those vulnerabilities, you get a lot more than if someone, for example, just just hacked into one of our CII, because they're not going to get everything. And so that's just something to consider. Um, the second thing that I want to actually talk a little bit more about is we tend to think of China and Russia and Iran as adversaries, like we silo them off. But if you look at the China-Iran security deal that happened a few months ago, or if you think about the reason why Russia can't spend as much money in military R&Ds because their, their economy, it just doesn't allow them to do that. But what if they partner with someone like China who does have the money, right? While Russia has the influence, they have the former Soviet republics where there are so a lot of people who are lo loyal and want to go back to that Soviet empire, essentially. Um, and so what if we can connect all of the what what if they can connect all of those dots um, and how can what can we do, in, you know, in terms of red teaming that scenario ahead of time and getting ahead? Because I do think that that is something that they're considering. If you look at the activities between the Chinese foreign minister and the Russian foreign minister in terms of the number of times that they met each other in the past year alone, right, that is a huge spike from even, you know, five, 10 years ago. So um, 
I th- so I think that's an, one thing to consider. And then my final thing is the fact that if you look at, um, you know, I've written a lot about how China is sort of co-opting the international system in terms of um, having more informal I- influence in the World Bank, um, in a lot of the these Asian development banks, et cetera. What, what they're really good at is basically saying, hey, if no one really steps up to the global leadership position in terms of regulating and normalizing um, ethics in AI and all of these things, then we're going to go ahead and do it. And you guys will just have to follow. And the U.S. really has stepped away in the past four or five years from that position. I, I very much agree with what Ivana just said, and maybe just to kind of add a final point, um, maybe a bit of a warning, because I think it's 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 so easy to kind of worry about what what opponents and adversaries may be doing, right? And again, you know, you can see all these reports about how much money investing and what they have come up with and all of that. But I think it's also really important for um, us to not get pushed into doing something that we don't want to do. Um, I think especially when it beca- when it comes to AI-enabled autonomy and lethal autonomous weapon systems, there's now this whole narrative about, I mean, we may not want to do this for ethical reasons, but, you know, the adversaries are already working on this, so we really don't have a choice, and so we have to. And I think, you know, I think we, re- we need to be really careful with, with these kinds of um, claims because, you know, that's how you get into um, really, really terrible conflicts. And again, it may not even be true because we don't know as much about what's, what the, what um, others are doing. So, yeah, so that's as a bit of a, a bit of a warning to not um, get too um, concerned or hyped or whatever about what, what adversaries are doing and, and lose sight of the things you want to do, but also you don't want to do. So on this point, we actually have a question that's a little bit related. So um, on opportunities for cooperating or at least coordinating with what the so-called adversaries. So her Hiroaki, sorry if I'm mispronouncing this name, asks, what aspects of um, emerging tech and security domains in combat should be addressed in upcoming dialogues between the U.S. and Russia, the strategic stability dialogue, and any comparable dialogues with China? Whoever would like to address that first. Ivana? Biogenetics. I know it's like, it's, I mean, it's definitely emerging te- technology. If you have asked a former um, CIA director, you know, what was the biggest threat? She would have said CRISPR. Um, but it is definitely so- something that's really concerning. China has taken the lead in terms of putting out a paper um, of how we should think about and regulate uh, biogenetics. And it is actually really, really good. I think they released it two months ago or something. Um, and I think we need to continue to have a lot of these conversations because it impacts all of us. And then, of course, there is um, climate because it affects all of us. Um, but I do really like the point, um, you know, about how we de- we should not constantly think of the, th- the you know those three main actors as adversarial. Um, even you know at the height of the Soviet Union, or the height of the Cold War, uh, we still collaborated with the Soviet Union on the International Space Station. So. So to, to Ivana's point also, and I think Ulrika's been sort of jumping up and down on this one as well, which is just because the United States 
sees certain countries as adversaries, that doesn't mean our partners and allies see them that way. So when we start sword rattling uh, so aggressively, it makes it harder for us to work with our partners and allies who are managing different sets of relationships, who are in entirely different geopolitical environments. And so rather than right if we can find opportunities uh to find synergy even but even if it feels superficial although i have to agree with ivana that the biogenetics is really important um we 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 are hurting our alliances by drawing deep and dark lines between ourselves and our and our competitors let's let's put it that way right and so i think we just we need to be careful because it's not just about making better relationships with people we consider to be our adversary it's about creating tensions for our partners and allies that puts too much stress on our capacity to work together so again i love this question for this reason and i'm, I'm thankful somebody asked it julia I just want to add to what Nina said about, you know, we shouldn't just be thinking in terms of adversaries when it comes to emerging technologies. We should also be mindful of uh, allies who are a key stakeholder when it comes to the development, governance, and regulation of these technologies. Um, you know, I think in a lot of discussions, we think of US and China as a bilateral competition dynamic or arms racing. And I think that conversation can sometimes be exaggerated. I think we should also be considering how our allies also play a role, an important role here. So just in terms of like research and development, I think this is a place where states can work together and allies can come together to think about how emerging technologies can be used um, for different uses and how they can be um, regulated over time because uh, collaboration is gonna be the way forward. Um, and so we should be considering these factors. Uh, yeah, I agree with, with all of those to, to add two more points. So I, um, if you ask me like, what should the US and, and Russia and the US and China be talking about? I, I'd say, so two things I would like to see in the discussion is number one, autonomy. Um, and I wouldn't, I think there's, there's actually a common interest um, for pretty much everyone, but especially the, the big powers to kind of not go too far in terms of autonomy. And in these discussions, I wouldn't emphasize so much the ethical elements. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm just saying that the common interest point are more the security concerns. We don't want a situation where we can have an accidental escalation that no one wanted and we find ourselves in, in a war um, because we have autonomous systems that react to each other. I think that should be rather clear. So that's one, one bit I would like to see in the discussion. And the other bit is, um, and I think this is particularly a, probably a discussion between the US and Russia, um, think about and talk about technologies that may end up undermining or endangering the nuclear stability. Um, not that, you know, that system that we have at the moment is like the greatest on earth, but it kind of works for now. And and so um, I think it could be really dangerous if if the technologies are being developed that undermine, um, for example, second strike capabilities from an adversary, because that just kind of increases their their threat perception so massively that again we may end up in a in a conflict we don't like. So yeah, these two things I would be great to see in in the discussion somewhere. I'm glad that you brought up nuclear stability, actually, because that is another question that we've received. Um, Hiraki, again, asks, how can we address or reduce nuclear risks from dual capable nuclear forces? 
such as the threats of hypersonics that I know I've been hearing a lot about. Maybe we can start with Julie. So I think Karaki brings up a really good point about, you know, nuclear technology and security, because I think that this is an important issue. Um, Enrique already discussed a point about this, but I think we can go even further about dialogue because this isn't an issue that's inherent to one country alone. There are a number of issues that countries can come together to talk about how, for example, cyber is integrated in to these technologies. So um, I, I think that, for example, China, Russia, and the US can have, for example, a trilateral dialogue on this. Um, but this could also extend to other countries who are concerned about nuclear security issues and facilities and uh, command and control systems. A accidental in escalation is in nobody's interest. And I think, right, find any adversary who thinks that's a good idea. Accidental escalation is in nobody's best interests. And and um, in particular from a cyber perspective, right, cyber has been really complicated for people to wrap their minds around, uh, in part because improper bounding of the question. But one of the clear norms that we should be fostering, one of the clear norms the United States and all of our partners and allies and our adversaries should be getting behind is no messing around in somebody's NC3, right? And it that it it and it's because it's in everybody's best interests for that to be the case. And so I think you know stabilizing it from a cyber perspective, and I know norms are squishy and difficult to build, but there's uh, decades of existing norms. That we can work, we can work on and extend. And so I think, I think, insofar as I, I don't generally work on on nuclear questions, but this is the one space where, yes, we we need to be talking about how to make this as transparent as possible. Unlike critical infrastructure, which is obviously a lot more complicated. So I want to go to another question that we received from Eric from U the U.S. Congress, and maybe Ivana, we can start with you. How are info operations technologies such as micro-targeting of narratives impacting the art of conflict without kinetic warfare? That's a great question. And actually, um, it ties in with the previous question, which is we get a lot of is, you know, I don't work on nuclear, but we always get a question of what happens if one of the world leaders actually believed in a, disinf a disinformation campaign that actually escalates tension, right? Um, and I think that's something that we're really concerned about is the notion of cognitive security, which is, you know, once you kind of fall into your echo chamber, it is extremely difficult for anyone to debunk that belief. Um, so then you start to really go down this, your own rabbit hole um, of what you believe the world is and who you believe your adversaries are and, you know, and how everyone around you, including your community, um, feels about certain things. Um, and so we're seeing it increasingly a lot of that's happening right now. And so these are no longer these like massive bot networks that are happening online, but rather something that's a lot more targeted, like what Iran did during the 2020 presidential election with targeting Democratic or Democrat voters in key states, right? Um, because it's also not big enough for to sometimes wa warrant a story from the media and action from Congress or from DOD, but it's just barely enough. Um, I think there was a um, colleague um, 
from Harvard that that did a study on information operations, and he said that while it does not escalate, um, it does have the tendency of, especially when you're already sort of on the fence about something, of sort of edging that person over the fence. But if you really look at escalation in terms of when we talk about kinetic or nuclear, um, it doesn't have that impact. But that kind of gets at the biggest problem in the info off space, which is that we don't have very good metrics of effectiveness because it's very hard to measure someone's cognitive um, decision-making process. We all want to believe that we're rational human beings, but we're not. Um, and a lot of it, um, you know, is driven by external factors and emotions and all of that. So how do, how can you actually attribute, you know, someone's changing behaviors to a specific campaign? And so a lot of info ops is kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. I just want to jump in here and say that's a really great question also from Eric. Um, I think that there's a number of issues with the sophistication of AI through deep fakes. Um, and there's a lot of potential vulnerabilities here. Um, adversaries can deploy this AI capability as a part of their information operations in a gray zone conflict. It could use, be used to generate false news, reports, influence public discourse, and erode public trust, or even possibly blackmail government officials. So I think looking forward, what we could do um, a better job of is working towards advancing, labeling, and authenticating content. This could go to the extent of identifying the time and location of the content or properly labeling the content that has been edited. But these are just some suggestions for how we can think about information operations and how we can um, best address the issues that arise. I think I mean I, yes I think I think Julie Julie you're you're right um, but I think that there's a certain danger um, and of course this is a technology panel so it makes sense that this is the way we're going but I think there's a certain danger of seeing um, disinformation and well propaganda as too much of a technology challenge um, which requires technology solutions. I mean, Julie is absolutely right that yes, tech can definitely help kind of debunk um, things and, 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 that's, and that's very useful. But as Ioana just pointed out, the, the problem often isn't so much, so often it isn't really about the truth, right? It is, it is more about echo chambers and playing into this. And of course, you know, propaganda and um, and misinformation or disinformation predates all of the technology we're talking about by by centuries, if not millennia. So, um, yeah, in, in, in a way, I, I think technology can probably only counter the technology aspects of disinformation, um, but not the problem in and of itself. And that's the kind of sad, sad truth I see here. So I think one of the things that, I've, you know, all of us have uh, most of us have friends who do American politics or domestic politics at some level. And so, and they're probably screaming polarization at the, at the screen right now. So the United States is in a, it is a uniquely interesting, heavily polarized moment. And it is a moment in which these kinds of techniques become most successful, right? You sow dissent when, when people tend to disagree, when if by and large, we tended to agree on something, you'd have a hard time convincing publics that, that they needed to do so otherwise. And so we should remember that there's this social fabric problem underneath this technological um, the volatility that we're seeing a lot of. I think one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves that I, I don't think I'm hearing clearly, um, and because we're thinking about DOD 
in this case, we're thinking about our respective departments of defense, um, is what is what is defense's role in this? And we know historically, right, the United States has had agencies, uh, United Kingdom has had agencies, right, uh, that do this kind of work. And the question is, do we follow um, our Russian competitors down the rabbit hole? Or do we want to do something other, right? Do we get we do we do we get down there into the mud and start playing information, disinformation, misinformation, poisoning information, or um, do we really need to think about what's a different path? And I don't have an answer to this question, but I hear murmurings, right? Sort of, well, we should, you know, we should get, we should get them back the way they get us. And the answer is, I don't know if punching through information makes a lot of sense, but I think that it's a question that I would love to hear answers to that are thorough and convincing. Yeah, and also it's that question of like, can democracies with freedom of expression win against authoritarian states that have heavy censorship, right? And like, I also don't have the solution to that, but I think, you know, when it comes to, um, and there, there have been a lot of conversations around what should they, what is the role of not just DOD, but of the US government? Uh, or should we, because the U.S. government is not a credible voice, like, no offense, like, if you're trying to convince, like, some 12-year-old kid in Swat Valley of why the U.S. is not bad when the kids just saw his dad or mom, like, being hit, you know, as, um, by a, a drone, like, it, we don't really have that credible voice, and so is it that we then, you know, take the DHS model and say, hey, um, we're going to give out grants to civil society works and nonprofits that do have credibility in the community to do these strategic communication campaigns. Um, and I think, you know, I don't have a very good um, answer to that either. I know that the UK and NATO have also um, been grappling with that. Um, NATO, in fact, is trying to make information like their seventh domain. I don't know if I'm count counting that correctly, their new domain. <laughs> um, yeah. So with the remaining time, I wanted to to flag, uh, we have a series of questions that talk about other actors, non-state actors in the space. I know this has come up as a theme in our conversation already. Um, Schneha from SAIS actually asks about any threats that you see from private actors using espionage um, for sort of competitive advantages in the market or tapping into emerging tech for purposes, more nefarious private purposes as opposed to public purposes, which is what we're looking at now or have been discussing so far. But also on another more positive angle, let's say we have a question from Linda about um, the role of multilateral institutions, um, including the United Nations in, in solutions surrounding emerging tech cooperation or coordination. So whoever would like to address either of those questions, then we can start with Jewish. I have a very short oh, answer. Nina, go ahead. Yeah. Cryptocurrency mining, I think, has been one of the most disruptive. And I don't mean that this is the legitimate. I mean, the use of cryptocurrency mining technologies, whether it's uh, non-state actors um, or or state actors, right? Um, I think it's it's I think it's it's an it's a problem. I think that that all of my defender brothers and sisters in cyberspace um, are spend way too many hours on weekends trying to trying to fight this back. And so I think if we're if we're going to think about an area where non-state actors really are mucking up the works, it's definitely cryptocurrency mining. 
Um, okay, so maybe I can quickly jump in on the, the multilateral um, institutions questions. So I don't, I don't quite know about the United Nations. I mean, the United Nations seem to be blocked on many on many things. So I'm I'm not sure I would necessarily um, go to them. The one thing I would like to note is that we shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel when it comes to to multilateral um, institutions these days. So so especially in the whole kind of AI realm, there has been a lot of new forums that have been created. Um, and I don't know or don't think that that's really so necessary. I think there are quite a lot of, of, of fora that exist and that we can use. I mean, NATO, most importantly, I guess, in, in our realm. Um, and again, from a European point of view, I think, it, yeah, that it would definitely be preferable to use those rather than, than create kind of new, there are, there are new alliances and new platforms and all kinds of things. Um, uh, so, so I, I don't, I don't think that that yet another institution or group or alliance is necessarily the answer. Let's use those that that we have. Just um, adding to what Ulrike said, I think that's really important. Um, per my dissertation project, is looking at the number of IOs or international organizations that are concerning these various emerging technologies. I'm looking at AI and robotics and cyber, and there's just a proliferation of these uh, groups, not just at the international level, but also at the regional level. And I think we should be mindful of the dialogue, the working papers, these discussions that are coming out about regulation and governance and seeing what areas there are for collaboration and cooperation versus making more organizations um, and perhaps overlapping there. So I agree with Ulrike there. I think a really great example of how uh, of a role that uh, multilateral works can play in emerging tech is if you look at ICANN from the UN and how they monitor and how they um, regulate the use of DNS, right? So when we type in www.csis.org, I don't actually know if that's your website, um, but that... Um, that nomenclature is actually um, monitored and regulated by ICANN, which is part of the UN. So I do think that when it comes to a lot of it, um, and this goes back to the previous question from um, a panelist about, um, you know, what are some of the areas that we should actually collaborate with our adversaries on? So when it comes to climate and nuclear and um and biogenetics, like that, that's a great place for a um, an IO to come in and say, hey, like we're going to agree on this, sort of like the Geneva Convention, right, on what we're going to be considered okay and not okay in terms of the application and how we do certain things. Um, and then to and then the, to the first part of the question, um, I think in addition to crypto. Um, that Nina mentioned before, um, you know, IS has been using drones for a very long time. Um, and so they're already starting to adopt a lot of the additive manufacturing, which I think is something that we have not talked about, um, you know, on this panel, even if you just look at the proliferation of ghost guns um, in the U.S., we were so close to ending on a positive note on cooperation <laughs> and, I, and then ghost guns is where we ended. But I think that's probably Sorry. appropriate <laughs> for this panel. Um, so thank you all for all of you, all these distinguished panelists for giving us so much to think about. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SmartWomen and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.